Before we uh, open the word together, I want to make two uh, preparatory comments regarding this particular message. Um, because I think they need to be made so that you're not caught off guard and you don't leave in the middle. Um, the first two-thirds of this message is probably going to make those of you who have been in the church for a while a little uncomfortable. And I want to tell you that because I don't want you to leave in the middle. But hear me out all the way to the end because the point is going to come near the end of this message. And along with that, second comment is that um, the text that we're going to eventually come down on is, um, well, it's actually two. Uh, that is two prayers of Paul here in the chapter 1 of Ephesians and chapter 3 of Ephesians. And we're not going to get there right away. So those are two things to just keep in your mind as we proceed. And if you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. Because I, I really hope at the end that you'll, you'll make a discovery if you haven't already make it, made it. And I find sometimes we have to have our thinking kind of jarred in order for us to rethink things. And um, so that's kind of why I've taken this approach. If we just put things in the same old formula, then sometimes we go to sleep and we don't really think about it. And so I, I'm hoping to break some new ground um, in your heart and life by using the Word of God in this particular way. So let me pray and ask for help um, because I, I know I need it, and uh, so do you. Um, Father, I just thank you so much for your goodness and grace, and there's one thing I, I know I want. Um, I want to know in my own life, and I want to convey, and I want those um, that you've placed in this flock to know with all their hearts, and that is um, how your truth works and how grace works, and that they would know your love, and that they would cease to run on a treadmill of, of I don't know, latent legalism or, or things that would bind or paralyze the Christian life and keep us from the joy, the love, the patience, the kindness, the freedom that we have as a result of all that you have done. And I, I know that it's real, and I just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make it a reality in our lives. So... Just take this message and give it life because only you can. And um, do pray that there would be no misunderstanding or, or, or a misinterpretation of what's said. And so, Lord, please just guide us. Guide the minds of those here and guide my speech and just meet with us. We want to we wanna know you and love you and, and have your word speak to us in a way that feeds our souls. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a, I had a relative um, who has since passed away. Um, a relative who is uh, bright, well-educated, but spent the, the vast majority of her life smoking cigarettes. I mean, she smoked like a, like a chimney. And um, we actually lived in her house after she passed away for the first year, and we took down pictures, and there were actually stained marks around where the pictures were. Uh, in fact, my very first uh, experience of trying to smoke a cigarette was watching her throw a half, you know, of a cigarette down on the ground, still smoldering, and I picked it up and thought I'd be really cool. And I picked it up, and I inhaled, and about threw up, and that cured me of ever wanting to smoke for the rest of my life. Uh, but we as, we, as, um, we as family would, on occasion, because we loved her, would, you know, urge her to stop smoking. Um, of course, she's, she's educated. She's a thoughtful person. She knew in her mind the potential health risks of, of a life of smoking. But regardless of all of this information she had about the negative impact of smoking on her life, she continued to smoke until one single day. 
She was taken to the hospital as a result, to the doctor, as a result of a respiratory problem. And the doctor did some testing. And he said to her, in a way that he needed to say, he said, if you continue to smoke, you will die. And something happened to that intellectual knowledge he had that smoking is bad for you, that on that single day after a lifetime of smoking, she gave it up cold turkey. Cold turkey. Something happened that turned that knowledge into a sense of conviction that radically altered her life, and she stopped and never, never took it up again. Now, my point in this message is not to talk about the negative effects of smoking or the negative effects, for that matter, of eating junk food or three pounds of bratwurst. Um, rather, it's just simply to point out two different levels of knowledge, of understanding. There's a, there's a level of knowledge of, we might just call it a um, cognition of facts, things that we come to know in our brain. Um, understanding of words and phrases and logic, and, and we understand them. That's a, a form of, of knowledge. Um, like the knowledge that my, my relative had that smoking was bad. But it's a kind of knowledge and information, a, a cognition, that has very little effect and impact on life. It's a little bit like talking to a, a child about school. You know, you're, say, you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten sophomore, junior, senior in high school, and you sit down as a parent and you try to lay out a persuasive and cogent argument as to why they should give their all to schoolwork. You lay out the information and they hear the words coming out of your lips and they know the basic definition of the words coming out of your lips and they understand the basic argument and the logic of the argument, but at the end of the day, if they don't believe what you say, then nothing changes. Now, that's one level of knowledge that carries very little impact on life. And I would be willing to say that there are a lot of people who identify themselves as Christians who have that kind of a knowledge. But it doesn't have any impact on their life or will. But there is another kind of knowledge. A knowledge that I think we could call a conviction or a belief. And that's when the knowledge or the cognition of something turns into something that we actually believe is true. And when knowledge is converted to faith, or we might say facts to faith, or cognition of the brain to conviction, then it's quite powerful. It moves the will to act. So when my relative broke through that what we might call mere knowledge to a sense of conviction that she was going to die, it moved her to overcome an addiction that had held her for decades. That's the power that a conviction can have, a sense of faith or real belief can have on the will and the actions of a person. And that, I think, is a, is a good way of looking at how the Bible describes faith. We oftentimes equate faith with the first kind of knowledge, knowing certain things about what God has done, who God is, what he's done for us in Christ. But there is another level of knowledge which brings with it conviction and belief. And that is a radical thing that changes and alters the way we do life, the way that my relative radically altered her life as a result of this conviction. I call to mind Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, when the, the definition or description of faith is given where it says that faith is... The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. There's that word, conviction. That's a good synonym for faith. It's the conviction that it's true. And where there is a conviction that it's true, a genuine, deep, penetrating belief and, and conviction that it's real, it does alter life. It changes things. It energizes the will to actually change. Now, the question I want to ask is, how do we convert fact into this faith? How do we convert cognition of truth into conviction of truth? How do we convert it? If, if, if faith and conviction, is that life-altering, and that's what we know we need, then how do we get there? Now, the answer to that question, I think, impacts every area of the Christian life. Personally, if I want the facts of Ephesians 1 through 3 to change my life, so how do we transfer them or transform them into beliefs and convictions? It not only affects how we approach truth personally, it, it affects how you approach ministry. I mean, my hope is that you come and you hear and you use your cognition to understand, but then there's conviction. I mean, so how we answer that question impacts every area of the Christian life and every area of ministry. How do you convert fact to faith? Cognition to conviction. Now I'm going to offer for you three different approaches to that question or answers to that question. Think of this sermon kind of like a spiral. One approach that I think more people take than they're willing to admit, or even consciously aware of. Perhaps one way to convert fact to faith is to study your Bible more. To study it more diligently, more consistently, more in depth, to analyze it, to figure it out, to meditate on it, memorize it, ponder it, reflect upon it. Maybe the way to take fact of what God has done and transform it into faith is, is a greater level and degree and intensity of study. So, you know, apply to Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, which as we've seen is just like this. Um, it's a smorgasbord. It's a banquet of intellectual truth about who God is and what he has done. That God the Father, the grand architect of this amazing plan of redemption, sends his son and in his name accomplishes salvation in a way that we can't. And then um, how he has taken sinners dead in their trespasses and sins, objects of wrath down in the depth and placed it at the right hand of, of the Father, the highest place. I mean, it is an amazing, rich, epic three chapters about God and everything he has done. So maybe the trick, according to this approach, is, and the key is, I really need to break it down, you know? Um, do my inductive Bible study methods, tear it apart, look up these words in a lexicon or a dictionary, figure out the flow of the argument, think about it, meditate on it, cogitate on it, and maybe then, if I think and study and reason hard enough, that it's going to turn into faith and conviction, and it's going to change me. Now, I think that there are many who would take this approach. You may not think of it as an approach, but you do. We often hear in the, in the, off the lips of people, Christians I know around me, it's like, man, I need to be in the Word more. I need to be in the Word. I need to study. I need to, I need to take it in. And I need to get up in the morning and do my devotions. And I've lapsed. I hear it almost every year uh, around a campfire at the high school backpack trip, which is coming up. 
you know, these, these guys are struggling with all kinds of different things, and, and one of the constant prayer requests is, I just need to be in the Word more. I need to be in the Word more. I need to be in the Word more. As if the ment- fundamental problem is one of study and intellectual effort. And therefore, if that's the fundamental problem, is one of bringing my intellect to bear upon the Scripture and get more of Scripture into my mind, then it would seem that the fix is also an intellectual fix. I need to study more. Now, that may work out well for those who are intellectually inclined because that means that they're going to grow more. Or people who have a a personality composition that is, uh, by and large, more self-disciplined than others, the person next to you? Well, you know, you engage that discipline and and you set your mind on the Scriptures and you're going to grow more because ultimately the issue is one of study and taking in the Scriptures. Now, for me, I believe that the study the Bible harder approach to converting fact into faith, in the end, is a dead-end approach. Because it assumes, it assumes that you have the intellectual mental power to do it. And it, it operates on a basic, fundamental, embedded, and often unconscious legalism. That... If I put my mind, engage my mind enough with enough self-discipline operating on Ephesians 1 through 3, then faith is going to emerge. And as I said, I I believe that that is a dead-end street. I know. I've taken it. It will result in one of two things. If you happen to be someone with an intellectual bent and a natural self-discipline, then you may operate using your mind and your self-discipline over the scriptures and you may gather information and a wide breadth of theology and doctrine, understanding how things fit together. But it will probably puff you up and create an arrogance and a self-righteousness and create a sense of superiority to the brother next to you who may not be as intellectual, who may struggle intellectually to understand Paul, which, funny enough, Peter had a problem understanding Paul, so we find out. So on the other hand, then, you have somebody who isn't intellectually inclined, and their composition of their own nature may not be as self-disciplined as the next guy, and so they find themselves constantly in a position of defeat, saying to themselves, I, I, I just don't study the Word enough, and I know I should because everybody's telling me I should, and I'm not, and I don't get anything out of it when I read it, and I've heard this over and over and over again. And there's this weight, this weight that makes them stagger as if the answer is more study, deeper reflection, tearing apart the Bible personally and inductively. Like I said, I, I think that's a dead-end street and proceeds and can, can proceed along... Um, legalistic lines, and I believe that it can cripple and paralyze God's people when study becomes the basis of converting fact to faith, cognition to conviction. So if that's a dead-end approach, 
let's try a different approach. Maybe the answer isn't studying harder. Maybe it's praying harder. Maybe it's praying. Now, one could look at this Ephesians passage. Now we're kind of getting into the text itself. Where Paul lays out, like I said, an intellectual banquet of everything that God has done. And it, it needs to be understood intellectually. But maybe the answer to converting that truth into faith is to pray. And you would have good reason for this approach. And I think we're getting closer to the answer, but we're not there yet. Because in these three chapters, you have two times where Paul stops and he prays that the Ephesians would get what he's saying. So you have his first prayer here here in Ephesians 1, 16 and following. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is what he prays, that God of our, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. He's praying that they would know something. Now, when a, the Bible's using the word know It's not the same that we often assign it in English, which is basically informational. Even here in the text, it says, he talks about the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you might know. It is a relational knowledge that comes with a wealth of conviction. So he's praying that the people who receive this book would get it. That it wouldn't just be fact, it would be faith. So that's first prayer. He's praying that they would get his chapters. Second prayer. Basically, he prays the same thing, just using some different words. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He again, at at the end of this prayer, he's praying that the Ephesian people and by extension us, Pray that we would know it in a way that is personal, in a way that is intimate, in a way that is full of conviction. So you kind of pan away and you realize, okay, if Paul thought that we could get it by ourselves, he wouldn't have prayed for us. And he wouldn't have taken the time to actually include these prayers as if he's saying to us, I'm going to write out all this wonderful stuff. But as strong as your minds may be, I know you can't get it by yourself using your own intellectual ability. So I'm going to pray for you that you will get it. That deeper level of knowledge that changes life. So we could kind of back away and say, well, maybe the answer then is prayer. Where we, we fall down is we don't pray enough. And that is something we hear a lot is is. Ah, I'm terrible at prayer. I know I should do it, but I don't. I know I should have set aside times to pray for my wife and my children and their future husbands and wives, and 
I just don't pray enough. I just busy my life and I know I should do more. And so if praying harder is the answer, then that means there needs to be kind of this energizing of our resolve and our volition to pray more. Maybe I'll pray at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. We need to pray more as a church because if we pray, then maybe this fact will be converted to faith and cognition to conviction. Maybe it's prayer that's missing, and so we run into this thing called prayer, lift up the flag of prayer, and and say, pray, that's the answer. Well, again, for the person who has a strong sense of volition and resolve, you may indeed implement regular times of prayer in your day and most likely grow proud, arrogant, and feeling of a sense of superiority because you do it more than the next guy who may not have that sense of self-controlled, self-disciplined life and fails to pray and you end up back in a place of self-righteousness versus defeat. And again, I think proceeding on the lines of believing that the answer ultimately is praying, that the way to convert fact into faith and cognition into conviction is ultimately a matter of just getting down on your knees at praying, I believe that too is a dead-end street. Because underneath that is the assumption that the problem is one of volition, resolve. We need to resolve more, use our volition to schedule more times of prayer. And I think one of the reasons that I will just call this a kind of embedded legalism, which bases our our trust, our dependence on activities that we do, like study and prayer. I believe it's kind of this embedded sense of legalism because it has been so hammered in the tradition of what we might call conservative Christianity. Read the Word, pray. Need to read the Word and pray. Read the Word and pray. Study. Read the Word and pray. And you know what I found out is that People don't just learn by the content of what you say, but they learn by what's emphasized in what you say. So if our constant message is to each other, really, you want to grow? You need to be in the Word. You need to be in the Word. You need to pray. You need to pray. And we're focusing our energies on activity. What is it then people believe? They believe that if I'm going to grow, I need to read the Word and pray. And that becomes the basis of their change. The belief that if I simply read the bird, word, read the bird, read the word, and I do the activity of praying, it's going to change me. As if the Bible is some kind of a magical formula that if you read it, it's going to, bing, done, I'm changed. Or if I exercise deep intellect on it, bing, I'm going to change. Or if I pray, bing, I'm going to change. Now, just to be safe, not safe, just to be clear, Do I believe wholly that the Word of God and prayer are essential to the Christian life? Absolutely, 100% yes, otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. But when study or the activity of praying becomes the basis of our trust, or we think that that's what creates the change, then we have a huge problem. 
Because studying the Bible and praying are not the cause of change. Really important word. It's not the cause of change. And if you think it is, then we are in a world of hurt and we have forgotten what the gospel is all about. So now let me give you the third approach. This is kind of where the spiral comes to its point. The gospel approach to converting fact to faith and cognition to conviction, which actually changes the will in life. Before I state it in the positive, let me state it in the negative. What is the way forward, Dan? Okay, you've given me two dead-end streets. What's the third avenue that's the right way? Let's hear it. Let me ask the question again. How do we convert fact to faith? That crucial, important question. How do we convert cognition to conviction? Answer? You can't. I can't. I have studied, 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 and studied. I have diagrammed. I've looked up words and languages and I know it doesn't work. You can't. I can't. Now I can hear your thoughts going, wait, you just told me two dead-end streets. Study and prayer, dead-end streets. Now you tell me this third street, and you say, I can't even go there. Now how is that not a dead-end street? Ah, but there is the irony, and there is the beauty of the gospel message. Because you actually can't travel down that street until we have exhausted all confidence in every aspect of who we are. I've lost confidence in my ability to use my thinking to change my life or use my will to change my life or use my behavior to change my life. That is... To walk down the street of true change and conviction of faith requires the Christian to pull up the white flag and say, I completely surrender. It's, it's a surrender of repentance. You know, sometimes we think of repentance on a very superficial level as if I need to stop doing something. And I would include that, but basically repentance is owning up to the fact that I can't do anything and I can't, by my mind and by my will, my volition, by my own human strength and fortitude, I can't do anything in terms of converting fact to faith. Raising the right white flag. It's the only way you can go forward is, is by acknowledging and believing. I, I just, I can't do this. This food does not do anything for me unless somebody takes it and does something with it. Now that, I believe, is the spirit of Paul in the New Testament and the gospel itself, even the Old Testament. Um, you have King David who says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer my prayer, for I am poor and needy. This is King David, the mighty warrior and pro uh, prophet and poet, you know, raising the white flag, saying, I need help because I'm, I can't do it. Here in Ephesians, the kind of the heartbeat of this whole three chapters is all about grace, which, if it's to be grace, it's always free. And there's nothing I can do to get it. Nothing. Not in my mind, not in my volition, my will, my strength, anything. So he says in the classic verses, you know, for by grace you have been saved 
True faith, that's dependence. And this is not your own doing. Both your saving and your believing is not your own doing. They're right there, faith. How do you generate faith? Well, you don't. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of our working, be that intellectual working, the working of our will, volition, or activities. And then he changes and said, for we are his workmanship. He's the one who works in our minds and in our volition and in our wills. It's his grace that does that, not you. That's his point. That's why I think he can summarize the Christian heart of the Christian message, which I think distinguishes it from every other religious approach. When he says in Philippians chapter 3 that we are the true circumcision, that is, we are the true people of God who glory in Christ Jesus, worship in the Spirit, and put no confidence in the flesh, which is his way of saying we don't depend on anything human. That's, that's mentally human. That's intellectually human. That's in terms of volition human. We don't put any confidence in that at all. It's bankrupt system. It just does not work. And the more you try and exercise it, the farther away you'll get. That's why he can say in his own experience, this is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says, um, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses that I am a flawed and fallen individual. And my human effort, human thinking is inept. I will I will glory in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. You see, first part of that verse, he hoists the white flag and says, hey, I'm going to boast in the fact that I can't do any of this. And the second part, he tells you why. Because it's only when the white flag's up that real power is experienced in the Christian life. And that transition takes place between fact and faith. Cognition versus conviction. Now, that's just stated in the negative. The way forward is to come to grips with, you can't, until your soul whispers, sincerely, I give up. I can't. You can't take that path. Really, the rest of the whole of the Christian life is learning that very truth. We don't just start the Christian life by raising the white flag, saying, I surrender. The whole of the Christian life is to be lived with that white flag flying proudly. But there's the positive side to it, stated positively. How is it that we convert faith, or excuse me, facts to faith? And really, the question's wrong because it assumes that we can. There's only one way that fact is converted to faith, and that's by the Spirit of God or grace alone. That's the bedrock, the heart of the gospel, something you have to come back over and over to again because we tend, by nature of our fallen constitutions, to place our faith on what we can do. But there's only one person who can actually take the kindling of truth and set it on fire in the human soul in a way that changes the way you live, and that is the Holy Spirit. That's one of the roles that he plays in the life of the church is that we have to look and depend upon him to light the fires. He's the only one who can take that cognition of what we know and then burn it into our souls in terms of conviction. He's the only one. And that here is at the heart of Paul's prayer too. 
You notice here in verse 16 of chapter 1, when he's praying right in the middle there, he says that he prays that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is the ESV up here, and you'll notice spirit is not capitalized. If you have a New International Version, you'll notice that it is capitalized. In other words, they understood that to be speaking of the Holy Spirit, the divine spirit. Now, in this case, I am convinced that the NIV gets it right, and my translation here gets it wrong. Because in Paul's writings, oftentimes, the function of providing wisdom and revelation is a function of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2. And even in our own letter here, Ephesians, Paul talks about the gospel being revealed to him by the Spirit, which is what led the NIV translators to translate it with a capital S, Spirit. And I believe it's right on. He's praying that they would have wisdom and revelation in this amazing plan, but the only one who can bring it is the Spirit of God. So it's the Spirit that sends it, sends it, uh, sets it on fire. And same thing in the, in the second chapter, or second prayer, when he, he prays that, let's see, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. So it's strength by the Spirit in this thing we call a heart and a soul. And the purpose for praying for the strength by the Spirit, he goes on, if you fast forward to the prayer, is that they may comprehend, or verse 19, that they they might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's only one way that we can have the inner strength to have this fact turned into conviction and faith. That is the Holy Spirit doing it, which is why he prays, and then why he writes. In other words, God's the one who does it. And I know that that's probably like, well, I've heard that before. You know, I think most people get this in their theology in terms of what they affirm. But what about the theology of your life? You know, there's sometimes a big variance between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. Because if we really believe that the Holy Spirit is the only one The grace of God is the only one that can combust truth into conviction. Then it's going to create an automatic sense of crying out. Not because it's a religious practice, but because we're absolutely convinced that we can't do it on our own. Now you might say, this is a... (laughs) Are we arguing about how how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? How important is this? That we get the fact that the only way that we can experience real faith and conviction when it comes to biblical truth is by the Holy Spirit. I I think getting that right versus wrong, the first two approaches versus this third approach, um, the distance between those things are the distance between east and west. And it will cripple and paralyze if you get it wrong. I talked to a a brother last week, last Sunday, and he came up to me, and my heart just went out to this person. And he said to me, Pastor Dan, I don't think I'm savable. He's being honest. He knows theologically that that doesn't square with the fact God can do the impossible. 
But by his experience, he said, I believe I'm unsavable. And he went on to say, I've tried everything. I have read the Bible, and I have prayed, come to church. It just doesn't work. I think I'm unsavable. And I wonder how many people here could say, you know, I, I feel like that. I've tried this. I've tried to pray. I've tried to read the Bible, go to Bible study, memorize scripture, and I've come to church, and still it makes no difference in my life. Obviously, it makes a difference in other people's lives. Maybe I am unsavable. But the part that captured my attention in his response was the word tried. I've tried everything. And my response was something like this. I said, brother, did you ever think that maybe you should stop trying? Because it's very, very easy, and I hope you hear this, to take the good gifts of the Bible, of prayer, of coming to church, and trying to save ourselves with them. And what I found is, is you can't save yourself and have God save you at the same time. That one must first learn to rest in the security of God's grace which came to us before we ever read the Bible, before we ever prayed. I mean, isn't that his point? When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he loved you. His love predated your praying and your Bible study. His grace predated that to you. And to discover that changes everything. All of the other stuff, the Bible reading and the praying, is always a, a response. A response to God's love and grace which came to you first. So that and when this happens, when, when, when we get this thing called grace, not, we just, wow. God says, I, I came to you and you were screwed up. You didn't pray to me. You didn't read my Bible, but I came to you and I opened your eyes. And come to grips with the fact that he loved you and offered his life for you at a place when you didn't do any of those things? Well, that... That totally changes the nature of everything we're supposed to do as a Christian and the fundamental motivation as to why we do these things. I don't pray or we shouldn't pray because we have to practice prayer. We pray because we want to commune with the one who first loved us. It's relational. If, if, if my sitting down with my wife on the couch and practicing talking... Is any analogy, if I have to practice talking and I feel guilty if I'm practicing talking and I don't do it enough with my wife, I got the whole thing reversed. Why do I want to sit down and talk? Well, because she loves me and I love her. It's not about the practice. It's about the relationship. And he loved you first. And Bible reading isn't a practice. As if by my own intellectual study, I can advance myself. No, it's you study the Bible to, 
know the one who first loved you and gave his life for you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and overwhelmed by a sense of the security and the enormity of his love, you're like, I got to know more of this. Deanna sends me a love letter. I don't have to practice reading it. Oh, I better read it. She'd be completely dishonored. No, you're reading words of the beloved. So when grace fills your soul in the knowledge that, you know what, I can't do anything, that white flag, and the realization that he loved you first, and it's real, well then, then these things no longer become works. They're expressions of faith, that it's real. And I'll tell you, I have suffered as a result of getting it wrong. First came to faith, you know, 1920, and I, nobody had to tell me I had to read the Bible. I just wanted to. Just, ugh. And then you get yourself in a church where it's like emphasized, read, study, read, study, pray, read, study, read, study, pray, as if I didn't already have the desire to do that. But over a while, it becomes like this drudgery, and you forget, hey, this is about my relationship with Christ who loved me. I don't get any brownie points with God because I pray or read the Bible. Jesus has already won all the brownie points I need. Now you do it because you want to know and commune and be in relationship with him. And that changes everything. And so my hope in saying it this way and bringing us to the role of the Spirit in helping us know in a way that's a conviction is I really want to see these latent, embedded legalisms that bind and paralyze God's people from the heart of what it's all about lifted. And that you learn to truly, like you read the Bible. Do I want people to read the Bible? Absolutely, but not for the wrong reason. Do I want people to pray? Absolutely, but not to save themselves, but because Christ first loved us and has set his grace upon us. That's grace is at the center, the spirit is at the center of how you convert back to faith. And now that I've given you the cognition of it, I want to pray that the spirit makes it real. Father, I am just so um, humbled to even bring this because here you've laid it out and, and I know that only you can do it and, and I know that you will accomplish your will and some will get it and some others won't and I just leave that to you because you're the one who is the mover and shaker, you're the worker, um, you're the one who gives the gift of grace, the gift of salvation, you're the one who opens the mind and enlightens the heart. So I just ask you to do your work and we accept whatever you do this morning. And I just pray that you would turn on the lights of some people, perhaps those who have been in church a long time, who have languished under the burden of acting and never experiencing what is at the center, and that is a gracious love on the part of God who offered himself for us. And I just pray that they would breathe the fresh air of, of freedom, the freedom that grace brings in the Christian life. Um, so for your name's sake and for the sake of your church and the health and the heart of it, I just uh, ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.